It's because we are connected to Jesus Christ. God changes our verdict from condemnation to no condemnation because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part four of No Condemnation. As this series comes to a close, we'll look at four expressions of the gospel as found in the New Testament, specifically in the book of Romans and Ephesians. You'll be reminded again how the gospel moves you from eternal condemnation to no condemnation, from sure eternal punishment for sin to guaranteed forgiveness and new eternal life. And you'll discover that while salvation is completely the work of God, there are some real and practical implications that should change the way you live today. Let's join our teacher now for more here on The Word Unleashed. What the law could not do, it couldn't justify, it couldn't make us righteous. Weak as it was because of our flesh, because of our fallenness and sin, God did. Underline those two words. I love those two words. They are powerful, intentional, beautiful words. God did. In other words, God took the initiative to do what the law of God could never do. Can I just stop here a moment and make a a really crucial point about your spiritual life if you're a Christian? By God's grace, I saw this and learned this lesson when I was a a senior in college. I saw it from Ephesians chapter 2, but here's the point I want you to get. You will never enjoy a personal sense of your security in your salvation. You will never enjoy that sense personally until you come to realize that your salvation had nothing to do with you. Because as long as you think that you somehow initiated it, you were somehow the the active initiating party, that you you heard the gospel and you were intelligent enough to believe it, and and it was your faith and your repentance that generated all of this, then you know yourself like I know myself, and you can begin to question that. But when you realize... As Ephesians 2 says, that when God found you, you were dead. So how much can a dead person contribute to his rescue? Try none. You were dead, and God made you alive. Salvation is entirely the work of God from beginning to end. And when you understand that, it brings a great sense of security because I didn't start it, I'm not keeping it going, and I'm not the one responsible to finish it. Salvation is from God from beginning to end. Now next, Paul tells us exactly what God did, verse 3. God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh. That remarkable verse, that remarkable part of a verse, is the gospel of Jesus Christ in a tiny little package. It's all there. Paul explains exactly what God did in four expressions. Let me give them to you briefly. Number one, 
God sent His own Son. God sent His own Son. Verse 3 says, sending His own Son. When you read that, it immediately brings back the, the words of the Apostle John, right? When he talks about God's only begotten Son. When you hear the word only begotten, don't think birth. That's not what it means. In fact, it's better translated God's unique, one-of-a-kind Son. That's how it's used elsewhere in Scripture. Of a son of Abraham. His unique, one-of-a-kind Son. That was Isaac. Wasn't his only son, it was his unique, one-of-a-kind son, and that's what's true of Jesus. By the way, there's a lot of rich theology in this statement that he sent his own son. The fact that God the Father sent his son argues for the doctrine of the Trinity, right? You've got two persons acting. Of course, the Spirit's involved as well. The fact that he was already his son and that God sent him implies his preexistence. He existed before the incarnation. And this expression, God sent him, as we learn even from the most familiar verse in the Bible, John 3.16, implies both the incarnation, that he became one of us, and redemption, that he came to purchase our salvation. God sent his own son. A second expression here of the gospel is God sent his son as a sinless human being. Verse 3 says, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Look at the incredible precision in that statement. Think about this. If Christ had not come, as Paul puts it here, in the likeness of sinful flesh, then he wouldn't really be one of us. And if Christ wasn't really one of us, then he isn't qualified to be our substitute and to die in our place. But think about the disastrous consequences if Paul had omitted just one word in that statement, in the likeness of sinful flesh. What if Paul had said, he came in the likeness of flesh? He possibly might have implied that he wasn't really a man, but, but Jesus' humanity was real. If he had said, he came in flesh, then he might have implied that he was just a man, but Jesus was more than that. He was the God-man. If he had said that he came in sinful flesh, left out the word likeness, it would have clearly implied that Jesus was personally tainted by sin. But Jesus was sinless. And so the only theologically accurate way Paul could express this is exactly the way he does. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, God has become just like us. God's Son became just like us except for sin. His humanity was both real and it was sinless. That's his point. The precision of God's Word is truly amazing. There's a third expression here. God sent His Son to be an offering for sin. God sent Him for this very specific purpose, as an offering for sin. Now, you'll notice the words for an offering or, or as an offering are in italics in our Bible. That's because they're not in the original. Literally, He just says He sent Him for sin. Now, at first glance, that might seem to be pretty generic. What do you mean He sent Him for sin? Well, it becomes very clear when you realize that that exact Greek expression occurs in the Septuagint often in both Leviticus and Numbers to translate a Hebrew expression that is unequivocally clear. And the Hebrew expression is a sin offering. So Paul takes 
this translation and makes it his, and it simply means a sin offering. This is why Jesus died. He didn't die for himself. He died in the place of others. For what reason? As a sin offering. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Or more specifically, to the point, Isaiah 53, 10, where we're told that the Messiah rendered himself as a guilt offering. That was the reason he died, as a sin offering, as a guilt offering. Do you understand that Jesus laid down his life, God sent him to make an offering, a sacrifice for sin, to be a sin offering to God? There's a fourth expression of what God did here. He condemned sin in the flesh. Verse 3 says it explicitly, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Here was what God accomplished by sending his son as a sinless human being to be an offering for sin. God condemned sin in the flesh. Not your flesh, Jesus' flesh. God condemned sin, your sin, in Jesus' flesh. That's the point, in his humanity. God declared his sinless son guilty of your specific crimes, and then he carried out the sentence that your sins had earned on his own son. Folks, don't shortchange the work of Christ on the cross. You know, when we think of, of Christ's suffering, we typically focus on the physical suffering. In fact, a few years ago, there was a film that came out by Mel Gibson called The Passion of the Christ that was obsessed with Jesus' physical suffering. And it's true, his physical suffering was horrific. And biblically and theologically, his physical suffering was part of the atonement. But the point of Jesus' death was not primarily the physical suffering. It was his experiencing the wrath of God on our behalf. And you simply can't reduce that to digital images. What made the death of Christ different was that he died under the full weight of God's condemnation. God condemned your sins in Jesus' flesh. This was the means God used. He delivered us from the penalty of breaking his law by bearing its condemnation as our substitute. That's what Jesus did. The condemnation that our sins deserve, both the verdict of guilty and the sentence of God's wrath was poured out on Christ. And that is the only reason there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God condemned your sins in Jesus' flesh. Lastly, Paul explains in verse 4 the result of all of this. And the result is the fulfillment of God's law. Notice verse 4 begins, so that. Here is, I think, both the purpose and the result of God's condemning our sin in Christ's flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, first of all, what does Paul mean by the requirement of the law? 
Well, the plural form of that Greek word is used over a hundred times in the Septuagint to speak of God's statutes, His ordinances. The New Testament uses it the same way. But notice Paul doesn't say plural. He doesn't say the requirements, plural of the law, as implying all of the individual commands. He says the requirement of the law, singular. So what is the unified command of God's law? If you had to reduce all of God's little laws to one great command, what would it be? You're not on your own here, okay? This is not a trick question. What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the requirement of the law is perfect love for God and perfect love for others. That's what he's talking about here. Paul means the righteousness the law demands. But the question in verse 4 is who fulfills the righteousness that the law demands? Well, at the risk of confusing you, let me tell you that there are two viable options. There are two viable options that actually divide Reformed scholars. There are good men on both sides of this question. Let me give both of them to you, and then I'll tell you where I land and why. What verse 4 may mean is that Christ fulfilled the law for us by keeping it perfectly. That the requirement of the law might be fulfilled. This is the view of most of the early church fathers. It's the review of many of the reformers, including John Calvin and others. It's the review of the great commentator on the book of Romans, Charles Hodge. And they would say this, in verse 4, the one meeting the requirement of the law is Christ, not us. As our substitute, he satisfied the righteous requirement of the law, living for 33 years a perfect life of obedience. And then, having lived a perfect life, God laid on him the only perfect one, the condemnation we deserved. And he condemned our sin in the perfect one. And in so doing, God made it possible to transfer Christ's perfect obedience to us. In other words, those who take this view would say that in verses 3 and 4, you have the great exchange. Christ becomes what we are, condemned sinners, so that we might become what Christ is, perfectly righteous. So, they would say we don't meet the just requirements of the law through our acts of obedience, but through our being in Christ. Since He perfectly fulfilled the law and we are in Him, it is as if we have fulfilled the law perfectly through our legal representative, Jesus Christ. Now let me just say that everything I just said in this first view, I wholeheartedly, unreservedly affirm as the truth. All right, I believe everything I just described, and we have seen this in many, on many occasions in the book of Romans so far, and we'll still see it more. So Paul teaches this clearly. I'm just not sure that this is what Paul is saying in verse 4. I actually lean toward the second option. I give you the first one because it may in fact be what Paul intends, and there are many good men who believe it is. It's certainly true whether that's what he's saying there in verse 4 or not. But I lean toward the second option, and it's this. Verse 4 is saying that Christians fulfill the law by righteous lives of obedience in the power of the Spirit. This isn't the means of our justification, but it's the result. 
This, by the way, is the view of such men as Lloyd-Jones, John Murray, the great Presbyterian commentator William Hendrickson, and others. I lean toward this view because of what Paul says in verse 4. Notice he doesn't say the requirement of the law is fulfilled for us by Christ, which is true, but that isn't what he says. He says the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. If this is what Paul is teaching, and and I am increasingly convinced it is, then Paul's point here is this. Ultimately, God sent his son, and he offered him for our sin. He condemned our sin in Jesus' flesh so that we, in turn, would live holy lives that reflect the moral character of his son. In other words, verse 2 is about our justification. Verse 4 is about our sanctification. This is what even the new covenant promises, right? Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, after the cleansing that pictures all that happens in salvation, God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So the ultimate purpose that God had in saving you and sending Christ to accomplish your salvation and condemning your sin in Jesus' flesh was so that you would live a life of righteousness that honors your Savior. He ends verse 4 by saying this, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, folks, that is not a command. That is not an, an admonition. That is a statement of fact. And it doesn't apply just to a few super spiritual Christians. It applies to all Walk is Paul's favorite word to describe the daily moral behavior of a person. And he says, every person, let me put it very personally and directly, you, every person here, is walking in one of these two very different realms. You are either walking according to the flesh, or you are walking according to the Spirit. To be walking according to the flesh is to be outside of Christ. It's to be lost. It's to be a sinner condemned. To be walking according to the Spirit, as we will see, is to be a believer. If your life demonstrates that you are walking in obedience to the Spirit, that doesn't make you a Christian, but it shows that you are. And there is therefore now no condemnation for you. Why is there no condemnation for you? Because you are freed by the Spirit through the gospel from the demands of the law. Do this and live. Somebody else has done it for you. And God condemned your sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ so that He could forgive you. This is here to encourage you, believer. This is here to remind you that God has pronounced over you now and forever not condemned. And that will never change. God's verdict is eternally final. But I don't want you to miss the crucial points that verse 4 gives us because it introduces the next section to us. Let me just very quickly give you the crucial points verse 4 makes. There are four of them because it, it sort of serves as a bridge to where we're going, Lord willing, the next time we look at Romans. Four crucial points from verse 4. Number one, God's ultimate purpose behind the incarnation and the atonement, the death of Christ, was not just your salvation, but your sanctification. So that, he says in verse 4, 
you might walk in a way that's worthy. This, this is what he says in other places. Go down to chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, that is, those with whom God predetermined a relationship, that's the idea there, that's election. When he predetermined a relationship, he also predestined, that is, he predetermined our destiny. When he chose us in eternity past, he predetermined our destiny, and here it is, to become conformed to the image of his Son. This has always been God's plan. He didn't just save you so you can get out of hell. He didn't just save you so that you can live however you want. He saved you for a purpose, and that was so that you would for eternity reflect the moral character of his son and bring his son glory in so doing. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved unto good works. We're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, but we're saved unto good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Or take Titus 2.14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He redeemed us so that we would be zealous for good deeds. 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that, you hear the purpose? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Secondly, another crucial point we see here in verse 4 is that sanctification always accompanies justification. There's no such thing, folks, as a perpetual carnal Christian. If that's how you're justifying your life, mark it off. It's not true. Here, we're told that Christians, by their very nature, do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we're going to see more of that. Number three, sanctification consists in growing obedience to the requirement of God's law. That's what verse four says, right? So that it can be fulfilled in us. And what is that requirement? perfect love for God, and perfect love for others. That's sanctification, growing in those two great commandments that summarize the requirement of the law. And number four, sanctification is ultimately the work of the Spirit. And this is what we will see in the next section as we look at it together. But what I want you to see, big picture, as we finish this study, is that God wants you to know and experience security in your faith. And you can experience that security because God has delivered us from condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No guilty verdict. No sentence. No coming execution. Only eternal joy in the presence of our Savior. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed, and that concludes our current series titled No Condemnation. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. But Tom, before we end our time today, how about sharing a closing thought with us? Friend, can I just appeal to you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, not to let this passage go by the wayside now that we've studied it together? 
Can I encourage you to, over the next several weeks, to meditate on this passage, to think through it, and to begin to live in the ramifications of it? There is really no more important truth as the foundation for your growing in Christ than understanding what Christ has done for you and the new position you stand in with God. I can tell you from a personal vantage point that for my own Christian life, it was so crucial for me to come to understand these truths. It was from this understanding that I really began to grow and to progress in my Christian life and experience. And that's my prayer for you as well. And of course, if you're not a follower of Christ, here is an amazing invitation. You can reach a place where there is no condemnation before God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Thanks, Tom. And friend, to serve as an elder in a local church is a noble ambition, but it comes with a sobering responsibility. The existing church leadership must actively be seeking to identify, equip, and appoint elders to continue the work of ministry. Invite your pastor and other church leaders to join Tom Pennington February 18th in South Lake, Texas, as he is a featured speaker at this year's XL Ministries training conference, Becoming Biblical Elders. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.